This is Sports Best, where until we're told otherwise, we're going to get rid of the worst and only bring you the best in sports. We are broadcasting fake live and direct to you from the Believe Podcast Network. He is the man who is actually killing COVID-19 single-handedly, biting lots and lots of spinach, Andrew Keller. I am Larry Olson, also known in my family as Bud Hole. Hello there, Andrew. Hello. I think you were making a joke about the spinach, but I eat a copious amount of spinach every day because it's good for you in so many other ways. Another thing that's good for you, stick around later today. We are going to chat with John Champion. No. Soccer broadcasting no. legend. No. The John pro- Champion? The John Champion is going to sit down with one Andrew and Larry and talk all things MLS, soccer, answer all my questions. That and dude is a legend. That dude yeah. is a legend. Andrew, so we had this cute idea when we started the show because there was no live sports that we should cover sports because we're a sports show. And we were doing this little KBO thing. We actually have a man rub bet going on about yeah. which team will fit. But it, does, it seems a little kitschy now when we have actual real baseball and soccer and things going on. I think it's very important. I've actually sold off some odds on how <laughs> I've sold some odds. And so when I win, I think it's going to be great. So you're saying that I still need to give the KBO standings of where our we man rub bets know what's happening with LG Twins. What's okay. happening with the Orioles of the KBO? <laughs> Thank you. Very good. You're getting into this. Atop the KBO standings right now is the NC Dinos sitting at 44 and 19. They're six and a half games up on the Dusan Tigers. Okay. To our bet now, we have an official switch. Man oh. rub odds. I'm glad you sold them off. Right now, my. Kia Tigers, the New York Yankees of the KBO, are at 35-29. and 29, One game better than the LG Twins, the Milwaukee Brewers of the KBO, at 35-30. and 30. You want to call off the bet? No, because as of right now, I am getting a man rub. Okay. As of and, right now. And as of right now. And best, guess what? When the Angels win the World Series, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my man rub back to back and just have like a date, like a 30-minute man rub from you. All right. That's great. Let's do that. And um, let's do it. Here's the deal, Andrew. As you alluded to, we've talked about baseball is back. We talked about this on Wednesday. Let's start with the one and only, the Dr. Fauci. He threw out the first pitch. Did you see him throw out the first pitch at the Nationals-Yankees game? Yeah, he was just a bit outside, (laughs) as they say. What? But I thought it was funny because you proposed to me, will he short it? Or sail it? Will Fauci throw it short and bounce it, or will he throw it over the catcher? He threw it short, but he did take our advice and not throw from the mound. He threw it in front of the mound, so that no, was good. He didn't throw short or high. He threw it. It was like so far <laughs> outside. Like he just, he just it landed in the infield, dribbled off to the side. He was you know, As you can imagine, Twitter went wild. You know what they said about Dr. Fauci's first pitch at the Nationals game? No. He threw a socially distant pitch. <laughs> That's amazing. There was that opening day. There was so much anticipation for it. And I think everyone just getting the jitters out. Like, so the game got called short because of the rain delay. Right. So in the sixth inning, the Yankees were up four one called out the tarps two hours later. Like this isn't going to happen. And then the, the team in the booth or not in the booth, I guess back at the studio, a rod and Matt had to, to vamp for a while. And did you check that out? Did you see what was happening? Oh, it was classic. I love like there's nothing better than when broadcasters have to uh, fill time stall yeah. like 
So I live in San Francisco. So John Miller, like he calls the radio games and like he can vamp like Noah. Like he could just like he tells stories for 40 years about baseball. He mm-hmm. will just kill time. But like I love when broadcasters like A-Rod, right? He's sitting there in the rain like trying to kill time. Yeah, it's broadcasters failing is funny. I, th- I mean, like Tony <laughs> Romo, I think could vamp all day. John Madden, it'd be great. John Buck. I think I'm going to take a unpopular stance that I think John Buck is an amazing announcer. I love listening to him. A lot of people hate him. I got no problems with Buck. So they they cut to A-Rod at the beginning of the the broadcast. He's got one cup of coffee. And then as it goes on, he starts accumulating it up to the point where he had four cups of yellow paper cups doubled up with his coffee. And everyone's like, what's he doing? Potentially, maybe he's got some little wad of Copenhagen in there. I'm not sure. <laughs> he might have a little cope. You know, it does. It did look like um, at one point they had this picture of A-Rod on the studio. It did look like my fraternity house where like <laughs> everybody in their, their cups of chew, right? With their yeah. dip cups. And then at one point he knocked his mic off his tie and he's fumbling <laughs> around. It's just classic TV. I think everyone's just getting the jitters out. We got to get back into it. But uh, start off with Dr. Fauci going just a bit outside. Will you? Uh, I know you're not the biggest of baseball fans in the whole world. Will you spend any part of this weekend watching a little bit of the baseball? Yeah, I'm gonna watch some baseball. Well, we got we got high stakes on on the season. I got to watch some baseball. I think I it's was also l- just captivating to see games without fans. It's so weird to me. I was driving around during the Giants Dodgers game last night, and I was listening to the game on the radio. And John Miller, the announcer of the Giants, goes, "Coming to you live from Oracle Park," and I was like, "Wait a minute." The- Giants and Dodgers are playing in LA, but the broadcasters for the Giants are broadcasting the game, watching a TV from their stadium in San Francisco. So he was sort of true when he says broadcasting you live from Oracle Park when the Giants and Dodgers are playing in LA. Yeah, I think the the whole remote broadcasting thing's crazy to me. I would think that calling a game remote wouldn't be that hard if you got the TVs set up and you got the HD coming at you. Maybe it's better, but potentially. I don't know. Do you think you need to be there? If you and um, I got hired to call games, would you refuse if it wasn't in person? I, I love that we're talking about this because, as you know, John Champion, who's coming up in just a little bit, he talks about broadcasting soccer games from his TV because he's not actually in the bubble come covering MLS games in Orlando. We got baseball season. Basketball season, by, by the way, starts up next week. Yes. Very exciting. And from the bubble in Orlando, they're doing mm-hmm. some scrimmaging now. So we have soccer, if you're at the mouth, soccer, baseball, basketball, and then, of course, football will eventually be start. And don't KBL. forget hockey. And KBL, KBL. But NFL is eventually going to start up. And I feel like this is like the obvious of the obvious rules, that if you do get to go to an NFL game this fall or whenever they start, you're going to have to wear a face covering. Mm-hmm. Like, th- they have to come out and say this. Like, if you go to a game, like, we're, like that's where we're at in this country. Like, the, get, hey, if you go to an NFL game, you got to wear a face covering. From my perspective, having nothing to do officially with the NFL, just watching it from a distance, it feels like the other three major sports are, like, coming up with logical solutions. And the NFL is, like, the crazy drunk uncle in the corner <laughs> being like, hey, <laughs> we got football. Like, <laughs> what, what's that announcement? That doesn't mean anything. They're just saying stuff because – they're they're in the future and no one has to listen <laughs> i think that's the exact right analogy the crazy drunk uncle is the nfl <laughs> yeah because also if best case scenario a vaccine comes out the entire country gets vaccinated there's no side effects face coverings they're just gonna pull back this this <laughs> this rule like what 
they're not saying anything. The NFL is – I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you anyways. Someone, a buddy of yours says, I have tickets to the Rams game. Will you come to the Rams game with me this fall? Would you go to the game? Yes. See, I think I, – I knew that. I knew you are too adventurous to be like, no, nah, I'm not going to go. Yeah, well – But once again, no vaccine. There's no vaccine. I guess it kind of depends on the, the nature of whatever we're doing. I think I talk a big game, but when it comes into practice, I'm, I'm going to be a lot more safe than you think. I don't know. Wear a mask. Don't make – I think that – all right, NFL. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Big news, Mike Tyson. What? 56-year-old, 54-year-old Mike what? Tyson is going to fight Roy, jo- Roy Jones Jr. in September. Do you think they'll wear masks for that fight? <laughs> Wait a minute. Did you just say Mike Tyson is going to fight again? Yeah. He <laughs> just turned 54 in June, and he posted on his Twitter saying, I'm back, and everyone's like, what does that mean? He is a beast. He's still a beast at 54. Um, I saw, you know, he's really into the weeds, the weed. He's really into the, to the marijuanas. Uh-huh. I saw this interview with him, and he was so high. Like, <laughs> he was just – he could barely put words together. And I was thinking, like, when I heard this news, he's going to fight again. I was like, is he going to have to get off the weeds? Can you fight on the weeds? Or, like, what's the deal? Why do you keep making weed plural? <laughs> well, I just, I don't know. Would you step into the ring with a high Mike Tyson? I think no matter uh, what he's well, doing, well, I'm not going to fight him. He has to say, that that's not, like, I was just say, would you step into the ring with Mike Tyson if I gave you a million dollars? But for just, like, for funsies? No. I don't think I would take a punch from Mike Tyson for a million dollars. I think he could kill me. I got a glass jaw, Larry. I like to put on a tough front, but I got a glass jaw. Honestly, I got hit by Uncle Kirk once. We were doing boxing. Yeah. And that hurt. Like with boxing gloves, it hurt. Moving on to my favorite segment, I want to know what's cracking and if we have time. Andrew. (laughs) Thank you, because I didn't know if we had time. Honestly, I really – I was like, there's no way we're going to have time. Yeah. Well, we got Joe cra- Champion. What's cracking, Larry? Um, guess what? Seattle has a new hockey team, Andrew. Are they cracking? Yes, Andrew. They are cracking. They are the Seattle Krakens. Can you tell the good folks what a kraken is? A kraken is a legendary cephaloid, cephaloid sea, like sea monster of gigantic size. Generally in Scandinavian folklore, according to the Norse sages, the Kraken dwells off the coast of Norway and Greenland and terrorizes nearby sailors. So obviously, Washington State is going to pick the Kraken as their mascot. Did you have to go to Wikipedia to find out what a Kraken was? No, that's something I talk about on a daily basis, so it's just off the tip of my tongue. Wait a minute. Have you not seen Clash of the Titans to not know what a Kraken is? You've not seen Clash of the Titans? I think I have seen Clash of the Titans, but I don't remember Kraken being referenced there. Yes, that's the big monster that comes out of the sky. That's why you need Medusa's head to freeze the Krakens to save the princess. Oh, I've seen Remember the Titans because this is a sports show. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen Clash. Did you see the video that the that they put out to promote it? I thought it was really cool. It was like these fishermen they pull up a net and get this like red light, and then this boom comes on from a nearby ferry it's like a can i see, are you are you drinking the seattle hype are you going to become a kraken fan i'm not going to become a kraken fan but i like the, <laughs> NH, the nhl a live nhl game is is a great thing why on can, tv not so much who goes who's got it's like really expensive who can go to a hockey game the one percent <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, right. correct. The one. Simply put, John Champion is a soccer broadcasting legend. He's worked for the BBC, ITV. He's covered World Cups, Champions League, the Premier League, and is currently the lead soccer play-by-play man for ESPN and work at the MLS's back tournament that is being played in the bubble at Disney World in Orlando. And it must be noted, John is a supporter of York City FC back in the mother country. Hello there, John. Thanks for coming on our show. Hi, Larry. Great to be with you. Thank I have you. a question real quick. I want to jump in. We interviewed Andrew Downey. He, he's a reporter for Reuters, and he covers Brazilian football. Larry says soccer, and he was saying football. I want to make sure we have continuity for the rest of this episode. Should we refer to it as football or soccer? You can refer to it as to, in whatever way you like. I, I'm not one of these people that goes around getting hung up about whether it's soccer or football because, uh, I mean, the, the clue's in the title, isn't it? Major League Soccer. So that's fine. And if you want to call it football, like much of the rest of the world, equally fine. I appreciate your generosity. <laughs> hey, hey Judd, before we get to the action of the field, I, I want to know about the decision about the bubble. Was there ever a, a, a thought that you guys – a talk going specifically into the bubble. They're quarantining the players. Nobody is allowed at uh, Disney World there in Orlando. Was what was the talk this discussion for you guys covering soccer for ESPN? Okay, I mean the discussion didn't really involve Taylor Twelman, my play-by-play partner, and myself. It was the execs that talked about it, and I'm aware that our NBA colleagues are going to be inside the bubble. They're having to quarantine for three months, so that's quite a daunting prospect. Strangely, it wasn't that that put our bosses off the idea of Taylor and I calling the games down there on site. It was purely a practical thing. The place where the commentary booth is, is actually behind the goal um, at the three pitches that are being used. So you just wouldn't get a good view. Uh, There was also the prospect of us going up on the camera platform, those great big scaffolding towers that you may have seen from our aerial shots. There were issues with that because the platform just isn't big enough to socially distance. So those were actually very practical reasons why we're not spending our time down there in Orlando, but actually in a hotel quite close to Bristol, Connecticut for the majority of the time. You know, that's funny. So last night I was listening to the Giants-Dodgers game on the radio, and they are broadcasting. The game was in L.A., but the Giants broadcasters are at Oracle Park. So they're watching the game on a TV and doing the broadcast on the radio, which I think is fascinating. What's been the hardest part for you making that connection, watching it on the team call, TV and calling it? I think the hardest part is twofold for me, uh, particularly as someone with a European background, largely in my career so far, where you are just the commentator. You're not the host of the show as well. So the fact that I've had to get used to all the studio duties, the pregame, the halftime, the post, that's been a a leap for me. Um, And I think the other thing that's made the actual calling of the games particularly difficult is that we're doing it from the studio that you see. We don't move uh, during the breaks magically into some off-tube booth. Uh, We just sit where we are. We take out our earpieces we put on a a headset with a microphone on it and call the games like that but we're calling the games off uh, the monitor that the hosts usually use so they don't need clarity they don't need definition definition in the pictures that they're seeing they just need to be able to see their interviewee if say sports center is coming from that studio obviously if you're calling a game you need the clearest picture possible so it's been quite difficult to get that because you're you're viewing it through the monitor through the plexiglass in the desk in front of you so it's actually quite difficult at times to see what's going on we've improved as the the tournament has gone on. We've got some better monitors on wheels now that are, are sort of rolled in towards us once the cameras are out of the way. But it's still not ideal. So I think that's probably, from a commentary point of view, been the biggest challenge. You know, it's funny because I was, I was watching the game last night, uh, once again, listening to the game, the Giants-Dodgers game, and the Giants announcer said they didn't come back from the TV coverage 
before the game had started. So they kind of had to like almost make up play by play because they couldn't see it on the TV. Yeah, that's true. I mean, so much of what you do when you're calling a game in normal circumstances is stuff that you see with your peripheral vision. So maybe a fracas between a couple of players that the cameras don't immediately capture and you're able to actually talk about it, press down your talkback key on the little box next to you to the match director who's controlling the cameras and say, by the way, there's a fight going on and suddenly he'll find an angle from one of the other cameras, if only from a replay source, so at least you get to see it. You don't have that luxury. So, for example, we had a, a game the other day where the last play was a potential handball, which could easily have gone to VAR, and it could have been a match-changing decision. But you couldn't tell from the coverage we were getting whether the referee and the VAR were in conversation or whether, in fact, he'd blown the full-time whistle and the whole thing was over. So you, you do get some difficult moments like that. What it means, I feel, and I might be wrong on this, but I'm reluctant to go into territory where I'm going to be caught out. So... It just means that the identification of a goal scorer, if three heads go up for a corner, that ordinarily, if you're there in person, you see in the instant and you can shout the name. I don't have the confidence to do that at the moment because you just can't be sure in the circumstances that we're watching. So if you notice, it might be three or four seconds before we positively identify a goal scorer on occasion if it's not clear. And that's just us trying to keep ourselves looking reasonably on top of things rather than shouting Ebobasi when it's Valeri who's just scored for Portland, for example. I was wondering what your thoughts are on, has there been a decline in the level of play or has the officiating changed? I mean, I was a referee for 10 years and I know that like home field advantage made a big difference. Like the crowd's cheering at you and you try to ignore that, but like it might get a faster whistle. Have you seen either change? Um, I think the biggest change I've seen in the refereeing is not so much the referee in the middle of the pitch, but the bar for intervention by VAR, which I think has actually been pushed higher. I mean, we've had relatively few VAR controversies in this uh, and if you compare that say with the Premier League or the Bundesliga or particularly La Liga in these last few weeks in Spain uh, we've had all sorts of arguments because the bar for intervention is much lower. Now VAR is set up on the premise that it's to do away with clear and obvious errors and it should be clear and obvious that that means that if you're going to have to look at an incident five or six times from different angles spend three minutes doing so have a debate and then decide the referee's wrong it's probably not clear and it's probably not obvious. Now, that's why I think M um, MLS have done really well. Pro, the referee's body under Howard Webb's guidance, have decided, right, this isn't for debatable issues. This is for clear errors. So our bar for intervention is not going to be quite low. It's actually going to be quite high. So there have been many moments in matches where I thought, well, the case for that going to VAR, and they check everything, but they don't necessarily upgrade it to throwing it back to the referee to say, have another look. And I think that MLS have actually got it about right. And I think, if anything, that bar, which was already high in MLS, is even higher in MLS's back, and the tournament's been better for it. In terms of the influence of home crowds, I acknowledge your point. I would hope that MLS referees are good enough in this day and age that they're not influenced by home crowds. Maybe it does occasionally happen. Um, the refereeing has been, in parts, very good occasionally not so good let's be kind to them because they're operating in very difficult circumstances as well away from their families in the bubble in just the same way that the the players and the coaches are so I think we've got to cut them some slack on that yeah all right so we're entering the round of 16 what's your thoughts so far on the playing games and then as we head into the weekend the the playoffs get going in in, in earnest well, I welcome some jeopardy coming into the whole event because I think that's what MLS in mid-season often lacks because so many teams make it into the regular playoffs. Um, we don't have that situation at the moment. Hopefully we do later in the year if we get a regular season of some sort off the back of this. But for now, we're into knockout football. 90 minutes and then penalties. No extra time. 
So there's no room for caution in any of these games. The teams are going to have to go for it. I'll be interested in the attitude of some teams. I hear whispers from some camps, by no means all, that maybe some of the players were there to garner regular season points and they're not so bothered about the knockout element of this. They'd rather be back with their families. We'll see whether that permeates or not. I hope it doesn't, but you could kind of understand it if one or two players, particularly those really missing their families and their next of kin are, are a little <laughs> homesick. Um, I think once we get through to the semi-finals and there's that million-dollar pot and a place in the CONCACAF Champions League, everyone will be going for it. But this round of 16 is the interesting one in terms of the attitude of the players. But we've got some good matchups. I mean, we could have had Portland-Seattle. Instead, we've got LAFC-Seattle, which I think potentially is actually an even better game if you take the rivalry aspect out of it. And for me, the game I'm looking forward to the most is Columbus, top of the supporters' shield at the moment, rejuvenated under Caleb Porter. Um, taking on Minnesota, who I think uh, are a really good side under Adrian Heath. Miss, missing Ike Parra, I think he's a, a big loss for them because he's such a towering presence in defence. But I think the way that they've upgraded in the close season is promising. I think when Amaria, the Paraguayan striker, is fully fit, he's going to score a bucket load of goals. He promised 25. He won't get there because of the lack of games now with this curtailed season. But I think there's every reason to look at Columbus-Minnesota as the game of the round of 16. Have you seen, I guess you you started your career... European soccer and like what do you see the transition I remember 94 World Cup in the U.S. they're like this is going to be the turning point for the U.S. and so 16 years later do you see a big difference in the way that the United States accepts soccer or consumes it? Well I worked for a British broadcaster on the 1994 World Cup I was based in Dallas um, I traveled around the country and you know going through all the airports driving down the roads to the stadiums you wouldn't have known the World Cup was on and it was heartbreaking because you knew that FIFA had said, right, America, this is your turn. Have the World Cup. You're the best nation on earth at creating the greatest show on earth. So please do it. And it didn't happen. And you knew that Major League Soccer was was the price that MLS, you know, MLS's creation was the price that the U.S. Soccer Federation had to pay. Uh, they were willing to pay it. It was quite right that they did because it was important that a proper major football league was created for the sport in this country. But the actual World Cup was so underwhelming to me and it took a while for me to recover from the experience because it was, I've been fortunate enough to do eight World Cups so far and it was by far the most underwhelming because every other country has been taken over by soccer fever and it just didn't happen in this vast nation here. Right. So uh, I, I now contrast that with an experience whereby soccer is, if not front and centre of the national sports conversation, at least it's part of it. You watch Sports Centre, the ticker at the bottom of the screen has soccer news. It has MLS news. For the last few weeks, because of the absence of other sports, there's been MLS's back talk. Taylor Twelman has been a constant visitor to the Sports Centre studios talking about it. And we welcome that. So clearly progress has been made. One of the reasons that I took the leap of, leap of faith to come here initially on a, a five-year uh, commitment early last year, I'd thought about it hard for five or six years. I'd had the opportunity to come. But I just feel that it's a really exciting time for the sport with the 2026 World Cup on the horizon, partially hosted by the United States. I think the league is growing year on year. Yep, it's not the Premier League, it's not the Bundesliga, it's not La Liga, it's not even Serie A or the French League yet. But in 10 years' time, it could be knocking on the door of maybe one or two of those European leagues. And who knows, in 25, 30 years' time, because America will get it right eventually, <laughs> there's no question about that, then it could well be the stated arm of the aim of the commissioner, Don Garber, it could be on a par with the, the top leagues in the world. And I just kind of figure it's cool to be in some way part of that journey. Yeah. It's the sport of the future. You know, I grew up in L.A. 
going to Dodgers games and the like. And one of my really good friends just went to an LAFC game this season. And he told me it was the most amazing sporting event that he's ever been to. He's been to Dodger games, NFL games, basketball games. He said the LAFC experience was incredible. I agree. I mean, I was blown away because I think with LAFC, what you get, obviously it's very new, it's very fresh, it's very glitzy and glamorous because of where it is and the way that they've set it up and the way that they try and appeal to this unique fan base that they have. But I've been to several games there, called matches there, just watched one or two games there as well from the Sunshine Deck with a beer, which is one of the great experiences. <laughs> you don't need to linger too much on that. Um, <laughs> but what I would say is that after all those visits, I still can't decide whether it's a European experience or a South American experience. It's actually a bit of both. But isn't that great? Because what that really is, is an American experience. And that's what the US needs. And you, know, you go and watch a game in Portland, and that, to me, is the closest that I get to my British roots of watching football. There is a sort of organic growth of the game in that soccer-mad city, which I really enjoy. But equally, there's some Americanism to it as well. You know, there's Timber Joey. Um, and there are those unique fe features, because there's no point America just copying the rest of the world and saying, right, we're, we're just going to be part of the amorphous mass. America needs to have its own soccer culture, but that's going to take time. And you're seeing it develop in those places which had teams in the NASL in the mid-1970s, so Seattle and Portland prime among them. Um, but it's going to, it's going to take a while. I, I always refer people to the development of football in England, which had the first major organised football league. Well, that started in 1888. So we're 25 seasons in with Major League Soccer. So we're at the equivalent point of 1913. And at that point, the English league structure was completely unrecognisable to what it is today. Arsenal were Woolwich Arsenal and played in an entirely different part of the capital. So we've got a long way to go, but we're, we're on the path. I, I like that idea of it being a blend between European and South American. Have you, have you been to an American football game? Like, have you seen that? I, I, I went to El Clasico, La Boca River in Argentina, and that was the craziest experience I've ever had in my life. The only thing I can kind of compare it to college football game do you mm. have you been have you seen anything like that yeah yeah I mean I've, I've periodically I've, I've been a frequent visitor to the, to the United States with my work over the years so I think the first time I ever visited a U.S. sporting event was an NFL game at the old Candlestick Park the 49ers when oh, wow. Joe Montana and Jerry Rice were in their prime this was back in the late 80s and I, I just finished university back in England and I bought myself a round-the-world ticket with Qantas the Australian airline and the first stopping off point was San Francisco so I got on, on a flight, it, strangely, because I never had foreign holidays as a kid. So my first flight was 12 hours to San Francisco from London. It's quite <laughs> a tough, tough entry to uh, the world of flying. But when I got there, I, I went and I, I watched the 49ers and was blown away by that experience. I tell you what fascinates me, though, and you might be able to provide some insight for me on this. If you go to a sporting event in Europe, the sporting event is absolutely the central pillar of things. And the fans are there just to watch the sport. And they don't want their mate talking to them. And they don't want necessarily to be interrupted by a drink coming to them at the seat. Yet, I come here, I'm living in Boston at the moment, and I love going to Fenway, for example. I'm, and this is not to major on the Red Sox or on Fenway Park. Um, but it strikes me that the game is incidental. So people are there actually to have an evening out with their pals and to have a few beers at the seat. And oh, by the way, there's a, there's a baseball game going on <laughs> over there. And sometimes I get that sense as well. Uh, at soccer matches in this country as well. It's a, it's a cultural difference that I have maybe wrongly identified. But what encourages me on that is that you go to LAFC and one of the European aspects of that is that people are there to be engaged with the game 
and not just there for a chat with their mates. So I, I mean, that's just a, it's a madcap theory from a madcap Englishman, but um, I throw it out there for whatever people think about it. Hey, John, if you could tell Andrew to stop talking to me when we go to games together, that'd be great. It might be an intervention right now. I'd appreciate that. Is hey, he allowed to buy you a beer or not? Oh, he could buy me five beers. He just can't. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey, just before we get going, I know you were at the Premier League for a number of years, BBC. Just your thoughts on Liverpool winning the title after 30 years. Momentous, a, a good shift, a good thing for English football? Uh, it needed to happen. I don't think any of us that, that watched and worked on Liverpool games in the late 1980s when they were winning the, the league on, on pretty much an annual basis um, thought it would be a generation and a bit before they did it again. And and a period of time in which the club has had to wrestle with tragedies like Hillsborough and Heysel. So I, I think there is a, a, a completion of a, a very arduous circle um, for Liverpool to be back at the apex of the English game. What delights me about it in particular is the style in which they've done it. And I think Jurgen Klopp is a worthy successor to Bill Shankly, Bob Paisley and the other great managers because he's a leader of people, not just of that team. And he is a reflection of the heartbeat of a unique city in Liverpool where football matters so much. So um, I've shared the anguish of Liverpool supporters over the years. Uh, I've endured the near misses with them, you know, the, the, the 2013 saga with Gerard Slip against Chelsea and the oh. collapse against Crystal Palace, which I, I vividly remember calling at Selhurst Park that night. Palace coming from three goals down effectively to derail Liverpool's title challenge when it seemed that Brendan Rodgers was going to lead them to the promised land. But I just think that they are in the best image of the finest of their former teams. They could give any of their great teams of the 1970s and 80s a game. And that is probably the biggest testament of all to the quality of this side and to the fact that they've won it with swagger and style. And I don't think anyone, even an Evertonian or a Manchester United supporter, <laughs> deep down in their hearts when privately speaking on their own, could begrudge them that. All right, John, before you go, I got some fun questions. Uh, quick hitters here. Better hair, Taylor Twelman or David Beckham? Uh, David Beckham, just because I'm not going to vote for Taylor Twelman on anything. <laughs> Would you rather have fish and chips or an In-N-Out burger? Oh, I'm sorry, fish and chips. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I've, I've been force-fed In-N-Out burgers at 2 a.m. by Taylor Twelman and our producer, Mark Connolly, and I'm off them for life now. Um, the British version of The Office or the U.S. one? U.S., not a big fan of Ricky Gervais, I'm afraid. So Steve Carell for me. Okay, uh, this is a difficult one. If you were to bump into the Queen of England, what is the official protocol of what you should do? Well, I, d I think it would be taken out of my hands because I'd be arrested on the spot if I bumped. <laughs> <laughs> the MLS is back tournament heading into the round of 16 action. You can catch John most nights on ESPN broadcasting the games. You can also find him on the Twitters at John Champion JC. John, you are a legend. I cannot believe we got to spend some time with you. Larry, Andrew, it's been a great pleasure. It's been lots of fun as well. So yeah, thank, uh, thank you. you very much for having me. That was amazing. I don't think people understand how incredible John Champion is. He is a soccer legend around the globe, and he came on the sports best. You have been listening to Sports Best. We get rid of the worst. We only bring you the best. For Andrew Keller, I am... Larry Roberts or Larry Olson? I'm Larry, I'm Larry Olson. Thanks for listening. Well, that was a great man. Yeah.